Hi friends, we're so glad you joined us today. Let me ask you a question. Do you know that you are loved? Do you know that you're loved? You know, it's a wonderful thing to have the love of a friend or the love of a spouse, the love of a parent or the love of a child. Maybe you've experienced gestures of love. Maybe someone has picked you up at the airport in the middle of the night, or maybe someone has sat with you in the hospital, or maybe someone has sat with you during a chemo treatment. Those are all gestures of love. Um, maybe somebody has taken care of your children when you were just in desperate need of a break. Those are gestures of love, but you know, many people have never experienced genuine love. Um, they've known a false love or a temporary love or um, maybe a selfish love. They know what it is to be abandoned or rejected or abused or just simply ignored. They have never known genuine love. But there is a love that is unlike any other love. It is a love that is available to everybody and it's not just a friendly love or a romantic love. It's not moody. Um, it's not selfish. It's a special love, a genuine love. It is a unique love that is available to you and to everyone. It is a love that is always about your highest good. If you have your Bible, would you please turn with me to the Gospel of John in chapter three. Here we are introduced to a man named Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee and that meant that he had achieved elevated status. He was a higher up guy and he was an expert. He was a teacher in the Old Testament and the laws and traditions of the Jews. Um, there are some historians who say that Nicodemus was one of the three wealthiest men in Jerusalem. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. That's kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court. And so he had this impressive status as a Jew. He was one of those fellows that when he walked through town, people backed off and stood in awe. Well, this chapter gives us a summary of a conversation that took place between Nicodemus and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's always good to know what Jesus himself said. And since we know that this is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God, this is true. And this is what Jesus said. And so we're told that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. A lot of people make a big deal out of that. People have written books on it. We don't know why he went at night. You know, maybe Jesus was so crowded and busy during the day, it was the only time he could get to him. We don't know why he went at night. All we know is he went at night. And there was probably conversation well into the night. I would imagine that they talked for a really long time, maybe even into the early morning hours. Well, scripture gives us just kind of a representation of this dialogue. It doesn't give us a, a word for word necessarily of everything that was said, but <clears throat> Jesus had been in Jerusalem for a couple of weeks. 
Um, it was Passover time, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread even lasted a week after Passover. And so Jesus, during that time, had been doing visible miracles, all kinds of miracles, um, miracles of healing, miracles of casting out demons, and, and things that marked his three-year public ministry. He was doing all of those things in Jerusalem during those two weeks. And, and the Bible tells us that people were believing in his name, but Jesus knew that the kind of belief they had was not saving faith. They believed, but it was not saving faith. Now, I want you to look at what Nicodemus says to Jesus in the first two verses of John chapter 3. <clears throat> and it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs or these miracles that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus recognized Jesus as a teacher from God. He was a divine teacher. And so Nicodemus acknowledges that to Jesus. And so they believe that he was a teacher. They believe that he was from God. Perhaps they thought he was a prophet. They knew he was a Jew. They had not had prophets, remember, since the 400 years between the New Testament and the Old Testament, and then John the Baptist came along, which is said to be the last of the Old Testament prophets, but they lost their prophets. And so perhaps he was thinking that maybe he was a prophet, but they stopped short. They stopped short of believing or of saying that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah and the Savior and the Lord. He stopped short of that. And so that's why it was not saving faith. Saving faith involves believing that Jesus is everything that the Bible says he is. And the Bible says that he's the Son of God. Now, let me show you how I know that. Back up to chapter 2 there, just above where I am on my page in my Bible, uh, to chapter 2, verse 23. And it tells us about it. Look what it says. Now, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, Many believed in his name. In fact, they accepted his claims. They could see with their eyes that he was doing wonderful, spectacular miracles, and they were admiring his ability. They were admiring who he was. So they believed on his name, beholding his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus knew what was in their hearts. He knew they were impressed. He knew they admired him, but they didn't go so far as to really know, really know who he was. Now, perhaps Nicodemus had some questions, some anxieties. Sometimes when you're in the presence of Jesus, you become aware that maybe you're lacking something. Maybe there's something going on in your own heart. Maybe something was going on in Nicodemus's own heart, just in, in, in the presence of Jesus. Perhaps he sensed his own spiritual need. So at least he took the initiative 
to ask Jesus some questions. Most people fear judgment. Most people have some thoughts sometimes about spiritual things. Maybe you're one of those who maybe sometimes thinks about spiritual things. Maybe, um, maybe sometimes you're anxious about whether you might be excluded from heaven. That's normal for all of us. We all consider those things and, and we fear God's judgment. But anyway, for whatever reason, Nicodemus sought Jesus out. And Nicodemus, I'm sorry, and Jesus, being who he is, being that he is Lord, being that he is God and knows everything, he knows the heart of a man. Well, he um, is, knew that Nicodemus was very knowledgeable about religion and, you know, but he knew Nicodemus's heart. And he knew that in spite of all that he had attained, in spite of all he knew, he was lost. He was separated from God. He was outside the kingdom of God, not possessing eternal life. So Nicodemus, apparently, we're going to assume that he's been watching Jesus during these two weeks. And so he's seen what Jesus has done, and he's seen what he's said. He's heard what he said. And so maybe, maybe he's gone to Jesus hoping that Jesus will give him some answers. Maybe he's hoping that Jesus will look at him and pat him on the head and say, good job, guy. You know, good job, Nicodemus. You know, look, Nick, you're doing great. You just keep on working really hard. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't do that. Now look what happens in verse 3. Remember in verse 2, Nicodemus has said, uh, you, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless... God is with him. And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he can't even see the kingdom of God. So Jesus knows what's in his heart, and he speaks to him, not to directly answer his question, but he speaks to him about the kingdom of God immediately. And so basically Jesus says, you know, Nick, it's not something you can do. It's not something you can do. There's nothing you can do to enter the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. Um, this is a fascinating analogy. For Jesus to use the analogy, the earthly analogy of birth. Now think about it for a minute. Think about your physical birth. What did you do to be conceived? What did you do to be born? Just happened. You were there. You were a part of it. But you did absolutely nothing to be physically born. So Jesus uses that as an analogy for Nicodemus. And, and he explains to Nicodemus that the same thing is true about a spiritual birth. He's explaining to Nicodemus that you've been born physically and it's important now, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you've got to be born uh, spiritually. You've got to be born again. And you make, listen to me, you make no contribution to your spiritual birth, just like your physical birth. The analogy here is clear and it's, it's perfect. 
you know, because it's the point that Jesus is trying to make. So you make no contribution to your spiritual birth. You need God to give you spiritual life the same way that he gave you physical life. You did nothing. And nothing you do counts in either one of those births. Well, that would have turned Nicodemus' mind upside down because that was not his perspective at all. His thinking was like the other Jews there, the other people, especially those that were at his status. He was thinking that people could achieve a relationship with God. That if you worked hard enough, if you um, knew enough, all of those things, that you could earn your way to, to, to God's presence, to God's love, to God being impressed with you by things like human achievement and works and religion and ritual and ceremony and morality and education. And Nicodemus was good at all of those things. And so he just expected that God would be impressed and that he would have God's approval for all of the things he had done. So the perspective of a man like Nicodemus is that a person had to perform correctly to achieve standing with God, to achieve entrance into God's presence. And God's going to be impressed and grateful that you would do so much and let you enter his presence. And Jesus says, nope, not happening. That's not what this is about. You have no part in what needs to happen. You can't do anything to gain your salvation. Nothing is enough, nothing is good enough. But there is a parallel track. There's a parallel track, there's what God does, but then you have to believe what God has done to provide you with that. God does the work, you do the believing, true believing. You have to believe what God has done in Christ to provide salvation as a gift of grace. You're not going to believe like these people we read about in chapter 2 that were just impressed with Jesus. That, ooh, thought, yes, man, I'm impressed. Those, those miracles are incredible. Yeah, you know, we know that, that you're a man sent from God. But that belief doesn't save. It doesn't give you that entrance into God's presence. Now let's begin in verse 11 and uh, read through verse 18. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Now the interesting thing there is that word you is plural. So he's not just talking about Nicodemus personally. He's saying y'all. He's saying the group of people who think like you do. You do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how are you going to believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man, that's Jesus. And as Moses 
lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, there's a lot here, but I want you to just skip down here with me. Let's look at verse 14. Verse 14, here's another incredible illustration and analogy. Um, Verse 14 says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Back in Numbers 21, we've got time. Let's just turn there. The book of Numbers is way back toward the front of your Bible. Numbers chapter 21. The children of Israel have their uh, disobedience punished by God. Um, Let's look at it. Let me see. Um, We're going to start in verse um, 6. They've been disobedient. They've been murmuring again about what they were eating. They've just been wanting to die and blaming Moses. It's just all day, every day. And so verse 6 And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for his people. Then the Lord said to Moses, I tell you what, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, on a pole. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now go back to John chapter 3 and verse 14. The children of Israel in Numbers 21 had been disobedient and they were being um, punished or disciplined by God. And so God sent snakes to bite them and the poison was deadly. If a snake bit them, they died most commonly. And so they cried out to God And in God's compassion and his mercy, God told them to get a pole and put a bronze serpent on top of it. And anyone who would look up at that pole after he knew he had been bitten, had been poisoned, if he would look up at that pole, the serpent on the pole, he would provide immediate healing. So some did, some didn't. Some believed it and looked, some didn't, and they died. Well, Nicodemus would have known this history because he was a teacher, an expert, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin. So he knew that story. He knew that history in the Old Testament. So the children of Israel who were stricken with deadly poison from the snake bite could be delivered from death by looking up at the bronze serpent. Well, they could choose to do it or not. They could look at it and live, or they could not look at it and die. Now listen, 
There was no power in the bronze serpent itself. The power, the results came from believing what God said and obeying it. Now, some could have said, oh, I believe it, but not do it. They didn't commit themselves to the belief. So others, though, who would believe it, commit themselves to the belief, knowing that they had been poisoned, could look at it and be healed instantly, immediately. So Jesus was saying, Nicodemus, it's like this. Sinners carrying the deadly poison of the serpent Satan can be delivered from death by looking up at the crucified Savior, the Lord Jesus. And so he's saying, look, elevate the Lord Jesus above all others. He will be lifted up. Literally, he was talking about on the cross. But we are to elevate him, to lift him up above all others, to look to him in faith and faith alone for your salvation. He is salvation. He is the giver of salvation. And that is the setting and context of what is probably the most famous verse in the Bible. Look with me at John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know that verse? Maybe it's a verse that you learned as a child. So God is, the Lord Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, who he is God, but he's saying to him, Nick, the only thing you can do is believe. That's the only thing you can do. That's the only thing it takes. That's all you can do, but it is enough. That is what God the Father and God the Son are looking for, is for you to just believe it. Believe it enough to surrender to it, to take it, to act on it. So Jesus said, I am the only one who has come down from heaven, and the message I bring is that salvation is a work of God, and it is a gift. It is a gift. All you can do is receive that gift by believing believing what God says. That is the truth and that is the message of Jesus and it is the message from Jesus. And that's what he's telling us here. That's what he's telling Nicodemus and it's recorded for all of us to know it. But there is a very, very important word in verse 15. Verse 15, watch what he said. I'm going to start in 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever, whoever believes may in him, in Christ, have eternal life. Now, I want to tell you what. Whoever is a very important word. Whoever. Anybody, anywhere, who hears the message concerning Christ and believe the message, that kind of belief is trusting the message. It's receiving the gift. 
it commits to or invests one's life in the truth of that message, in the truth of what you know and believe. If you really believe something, you're going to act on it. It's not just a matter of having some information in your head. It is a matter of acting on what it is that you believe. So anyone, anyone who commits himself or herself to Jesus, to him lifted up and crucified and makes that commitment is going to have eternal life in heaven. God said so. God said so. When a person does that, he or she is saved. Anyone. Anyone. Now, why in the world would God do that? I mean, look at the way people have treated God. There they were in the Old Testament fussing and complaining. And we fuss and complain if God doesn't always do what, he want, what we want him to do. But, but why, why would God give eternal life to anybody just for believing in him? I mean, you know, shouldn't you work? Shouldn't you study? Shouldn't you be moral? Shouldn't you have human achievement? Shouldn't you do things that the flesh tells us God ought to be impressed with? Nope. Nope. This is God's plan anybody who just believes in him. Now, what is behind all of that whole thing? Why, why would God do that? Verse 16, for God did what? So loved the world. God so loved the world. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son, Jesus, to make it possible. He gave his only son, Jesus, so that all we would have to do is believe him, receive him. The world is anybody in the world, anybody who has ever lived on the planet. That's what he's saying. Whoever, that is an important word. I am a whoever, you are a whoever. God loves humanity. He loves all mankind. He loves the worst of the worst, whoever. God's love is the reason for salvation. And so it's a broad sweep of God's love. Sometimes God loves us with a broad sweep. Sometimes you'll see him in your own life just loving you in a special personal place for you. So God acted in his love or out of his love, however you want to say it. And he gave his unique, perfect, one-of-a-kind son, the only one, his beloved son. He also is called the son of his love. The son of his love. He gave that son to die for our sins. Love. This is love. This is what love is. That Jesus would lay down his life in cooperation with the Father that we could be saved. There's another interesting word here. It says, so. I told you I like words. So. What does so mean? God so loved the world. What does so mean? So means to the degree that. So means to the degree that. 
So to what did degree did God love you? To what degree does, love, does God love you? Uh, of course, we're talking past tense with the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. But what degree, to what degree did God love you? To the degree that he gave his only perfect son of his love to die so that you wouldn't have to. So that you wouldn't have to. That's how much he loves you. Whoever believes. Whoever. Believes what? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that he is everything God's word says that he is. He is the son of God and he is indeed God in the flesh. You believe that God raised him from the dead. That he was crucified for our sins and then raised from the dead. Believe the meaning of the cross and the resurrection, understanding that I need the cross because I know that I'm a sinner and I receive that gift. You know, isn't it sad? Did you ever give somebody a gift and they just didn't bother to open it? Oh my goodness, to give a gift this valuable and for people to say, I don't want it. I would rather die than have it. I love my sin too much to accept it, to receive it. Whoever, believe the gospel, whoever, and then what happens? Whoever includes the vilest sinner and the result, the result of believing is that he or she shall not perish. Shall not perish. That is a reference to hell. That is a reference to eternal separation from God and being living in eternity in a place where there is nothing like God. There's no love, there's no peace, there's no joy, there's no helping one another. These people who believe that hell, hell is just going to be a continuing party with their sinful friends, that is a sad, sad reality. Not what it is. It's darkness. It's not knowing anybody else is there. It is misery like we cannot imagine. And so he says, you know, the result of believing means that you're delivered from that. And instead of perishing, you're going to have eternal life. What does that mean? It means living in God's presence in heaven forever, where everything there is everything like God. Good things. It's all a work of God. It's all a work of God. Why? Why wouldn't he let us bring something to, to, to the table, you know? Uh, sometimes we go to cover dish meals. We have a lot of those here around us. And, and we take something. We offer something. We offer part of the provision. We bring, bring something to the table. But then again, somebody may invite you to come to a beautiful dinner and say, we don't want you to bring anything. You just come. That's the difference. And so God's just saying, you don't bring anything. Truth is, we can't bring anything. We can't do anything to add to what God has already done. 
Why wouldn't he let us just do something? You know, so many of us have that personality where we just want to contribute. We want to do something for somebody. We want to do something for God. If we could bring something to the table, if I could do something to contribute to my salvation, then I would get part of the glory. God says, mm -mm. all this glory belongs to me, belongs to me. And he gets all the glory for that. So the only thing we have to boast about is the Lord Jesus and what he's done, who he is. Now, go back with me to John chapter 3. And I'm going to begin reading in 16, but I want you to look at 17 and 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him should not perish, but instead have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him, listen to it. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. He is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Why would God have to do that? Because we don't always choose good. We don't. And so God's giving us a way out. But he says, you've already been condemned and you continue to be condemned if you have not believed in the name, in the whole character, in who Jesus is, the only begotten Son of God. Now, when you were born, you showed up on this planet, you arrived an unbeliever. That's the way you were born, an unbeliever. You, 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 you arrived on this planet, you were physically born not knowing Christ. Not knowing Christ. Um, there's scriptural evidence that, that shows, for those of you who are, who are panicking, there's scriptural evidence that shows that babies who die go to heaven. But we are born unbelievers. We're born separated from God. The only way, the only way that can be fixed is for one to believe in the Son of God. For one to believe in the Son of God. Now, maybe Nicodemus didn't know what to do with all this. We do know from Scripture that Nicodemus ultimately did believe. But he's still thinking about it right here. And maybe just he thought like so many of us think. You know how so many of us think, you know, whoever? Well, surely God wouldn't save him. Surely God didn't mean that piece of filth. Surely God didn't mean that person who did me that kind of hurt. Well, there are some people who are racist who think sure, God's not going to save that race. In the book of Revelation, there is a scene in heaven where all the saints are gathered around the throne of God and they are from 
every tongue and every tribe and every nation. And there's some of us who think that God is keeping a record. Here, here's what a lot of people think, that God is keeping a record of our good things and our bad things, and he's going to take a tally. And if the good outweighs the bad, then we go to heaven. Mm -mm. Doesn't matter how much good you do, you know, your good is not going to outweigh your bad because it's not about good and bad. It's not doing good and doing bad. It's about believing and not believing. It's about whether you are dead or alive. And so God's not going to rule in our favor if he looks at us and checks some imaginable tally, which he doesn't have. And say, you know what? You've got one more good thing than you've got bad, so come on in, darling. Uh-uh. It's not what he's looking for. Listen, what sends people to hell is not what we do. What sends people to hell is not that we sin and break God's law. Now, let me tell you this. Underline it. God does not send people to hell. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. God doesn't send people to hell. That decision is in my hands. I decide if I want to go there or not. God says, this is what's going to keep you out. This is what's going to keep you out. You're going to believe in my son. You're going to believe the plan that I have put before you to keep you from going there. People go to condemnation because they do not believe and accept God's way out of it. That's the only way you go to hell. You don't go to hell for being bad. We're all bad. None of us is perfect. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, the perfection of God. We just do. So what's the plan? Believe in Jesus Christ. Whoever, you might want to say that word out loud, whoever, whoever believes in Jesus Christ. And you know what? When you really believe the gospel, when you get it, and the Holy Spirit will do that for you, when you get it, when you go to God and say, I, I need to get this, He's going to give you that, and you know what's going to happen to you? You're going to hate sin. You're going to start to hate it. So you're not going to miss any of that stuff you used to do. You're just going to hate it. And, and, and being, that's how being saved changes your life. When the Holy Spirit comes in, he's going to give you the mind and the desires of Christ. Now, we're going to have to have some baggage. We've got some baggage that once we're born, now go back to the born definition. When a baby is born, can he do anything for himself? No. All a newborn baby can do is sleep and eat and mess up a diaper, right? That's all. When we are just born again, when we are born spiritually, we start in that place. We're not born again as mature Christians. We've got baggage we've got to deal with. We've got to learn how to put off the old and put on the new. We've got to learn how to 
eat from God's word. We've got to learn how to go to the Lord in prayer and say to him whatever it is we need to say. Commune with him. Whoever. And when you do, it will change your life if it's real. If you really believe, not believing like these people in chapter 2 that were just impressed, but receiving, bowing before him. Believe in Jesus Christ. That is the issue, and God takes care of the rest of it. He takes care of the rest of it. It is His work. Believe in, trust in, rely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's love gift to you. It's a gift. Did you know that God loved you that much? You, singular you as an individual. The best present of all is Jesus, God's Son. And if you've not received that gift and opened it, you can. Just you and God right there, right wherever you are in this moment. God, God is there. He knows you're watching. He knows you're hearing. And He's waiting to see what your decision's going to be. Because he's not going to come to a place where he's not invited, received. You are that whosoever that God loves. You're that. It's a wonderful thought to think that you can live loved. Some people don't. People live crabby and attacked and in a mess. You can live loved. You can live loved. And no matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done or what you're going through, God loves you. You. And He's waiting. He's waiting for you to invite Him into your life, to ask Him to save you, to ask Him for His help. And He can't wait to get there. He's waiting for you. Open his gift. Open his gift. You get before him right now, just you and God, and say to him whatever you need to say, and he will hear you.